Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, with strong Diablo winds and Santa Ana winds behind them, frightening fires raced through wine country and threatened huge swaths of Northern California and Southern California this week. As many of you know, it closed schools for hundreds of thousands of students. We'll talk about the fires this week, but we'll also focus on what schools could be doing instead of suspending students who pose discipline problems and then sending them home. Of course, some misbehaving students would love to be out of school for a few days, and they may see suspension as more of a reward than a punishment. But first, the fires. We're pleased to have in the studio our reporter, Sydney Johnson, who went with our colleague, Ashley Smith, to visit evacuation centers in Santa Rosa and Petaluma. Welcome, Sydney. Thanks, Lewis. It's great to be here. So, Sydney, I understand that obviously numbers of schools were shut down in the area, as well as Santa Rosa Junior College and Sonoma State University. Thousands of students, right? Right. So 3,000 students who live on campus at Sonoma State were evacuated this week for the fire. They're going to open up the campus again this week, starting Saturday. But that meant thousands of students were dispersed and looking for housing. Also, students at Santa Rosa Junior College, like you just said, were evacuated. So Santa Rosa Junior College, they don't have residential housing there, presumably. So these are students who couldn't go to class. And you talked to some students at the evacuation center. Tell us what you found. I found a brother and sister who are both students at Santa Rosa Junior College. They both had different kind of feelings about what was running through their mind as they were sitting there in the evacuation center. That was Renee Chavaria and his sister Bianca Chavaria, both students at the community college. Right. So for Renee, he was not thinking too much about the classes that he was missing. He said that he had some assignments that week, but really he was just thinking about when can we go home and when are we going to find out if our home is threatened or if we can move back and kind of get back to normal. For his sister Bianca, She was thinking a lot about returning the next week, and in particular because she was supposed to finish up her prerequisites this semester in order to transfer to a different school next fall. Now she's worried that because she's missed a lot of class this week that that might not happen and she may have to push it back. This is not the first time this has happened. I mean, unfortunately, this is now becoming a regular recurrence. That's right. And just as of Thursday, another fire broke out in Southern California and Cal State San Bernardino canceled classes. So this is ongoing right now. Of course, every secondary and elementary school was canceled in Sonoma County, too. So there must have been a lot of kids as well. Every district in in Sonoma County Office of Education closed down classes Monday, and most will remain closed through Friday. In your interviews with Renee and Bianca, I mean, their families actually live in the area. So the whole family was evacuated, was in the center? The whole family was there. Their parents, their grandmother was there. There were a lot of services that were being provided at the evacuation centers, too. One of them being some cell phone companies were providing free phones and Wi-Fi hotspots. So this is getting to be a little bit too familiar, as you mentioned. It looked like it was well run. Something that both Bianca and Renee really emphasized was they felt like they were getting the resources that they need if they asked for it. There were plenty of donations for anything from diapers and milk to a holistic healthcare clinic that was providing free acupuncture and massages to people who were there. But of course, for many of the people who were there, this wasn't an unfamiliar feeling and and they've been evacuated in fires in the past. One principal that we spoke to said that just having smoke in the air was causing anxiety with some students and they're already thinking of when class does start, 
what sort of social emotional supports are they going to have to think about in order to deal with some of those after effects, even when the fire is contained? Well, this is certainly something that schools and colleges have had to deal with in the past, but now it seems almost certain they're going to have to be dealing with this on a regular basis. So I'm assuming that all of them will have to come up with contingency plans on how students will make up the work. That's right. And also the emotional fallouts as well. So some schools have been thinking about adding more counseling services after these sorts of events. For K-12 schools, they can sometimes add additional days of school at the end of the year. It's a little bit trickier with higher ed. I'm not sure what schools are going to be doing to respond to that as this becomes more normal. We've been talking with Sydney Johnson, a reporter with EdSource. Thanks for heading up there, Sydney. Yeah, thanks for having me. John, as you've been writing about for the last several years, there's been a big push in California to reduce student suspensions and expulsions. Recently, Governor Newsom signed a bill that extends a ban on suspending students for willful defiance of school authorities and disrupting school activities, at least for students through the eighth grade. Well, this willful defiance category is a pretty vague category that has disproportionately affected African-American students. At the same time, many teachers have been unhappy about eliminating their ability to suspend students for disruption and willful defiance. Of course, they've always had the ability to send a student to the principal's office and then be placed in what is called an in-school suspension. But John, you know, one of the problems is that uh, relatively little attention has been paid to these so-called in-school suspensions. What happens there? Are they effective? Are students better off or worse off after they've gone there? And of course, we suspect that they've been on the rise as out-of-school suspensions have decreased. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons we assigned EdSource reporter Carolyn Jones to write an article about in-school suspensions. And what she found is that in-school suspensions can be effective, but not unless kids get more counseling and there's really intervention in those classrooms. To talk about this, we have on the line Ramiro Rubalcaba. He's an assistant superintendent in the Victor Valley Union High School District. That's a school district in Riverside County. He's been a leader in coming up with alternatives to out-of-school suspensions. And I asked him for his appraisal of in-school suspensions. Unfortunately, sometimes it turns into a holding tank for students, almost like a breakfast club where students sit bored, working on worksheets or not doing a lot of work. And it's still excluding students from instruction with the intent of providing them perhaps reflection opportunity. But nonetheless, it's still excluding them from instruction. Now, we have heard that there are some districts experiencing success, and that's wonderful where they're utilizing curriculum to really help students identify what they did wrong, what the expectation is, and what they can do differently in the future. But I think, generally speaking, research supports, let's try to keep students in the classroom as much as possible, and let's try to focus on being preventative rather than being reactionary. Well, I'm assuming that many districts would like to do more, but they say they lack the resources to do it. In elementary schools, there's not a counselor in every school, and often the principal is the one who substitutes if a teacher calls in sick. So what do you tell them that they say, we just don't have resources to do more? Schools are limited with funding, especially here in California. I would say that you need to really focus on the root cause and the circumstances that are within our control. In other words, Just like we teach reading and writing, 
teaching behavior is equally as important, if not more important, to ensuring a, a positive, safe, effective learning environment. So what we need to do is choose to have our teachers teach students how to get along, how to respect each other, how to make good decisions, how to critically think, how to share, just like we teach them reading, math, science, and history. And is that fall under the category of social-emotional learning, which I think is getting a lot more attention? It does. It absolutely does. And there's a lot of overlap between the various strategies, such as PBIS, restorative justice, social-emotional learning, mindfulness. And PBIS, for those who are not familiar with it, stands for Positive Behavior Intervention and Supports, right? That is correct. So a lot of it is just teaching the students the skills that they need to be able to manage conflict, to be able to make good decisions and critically think, to be productive members of our society. And I have experienced personally in, in both Los Angeles Unified, Azusa Unified, and we're starting to see it here at the Victor Valley Union High School District, the more we focus our efforts on prevention versus being reactionary, on being positive versus being punitive, we get an overwhelming response that is good for students both academically and behaviorally. We're talking with Ramiro Rubalcaba. He's an assistant superintendent with the Victor Valley Union High School District. You were telling me that there are some things that teachers can do perhaps before they send a student to the principal. There are techniques to avoid that and in-school suspensions. Tell me a little bit maybe what you've done or what you encourage teachers to do. We encourage teachers to really look at what are some of the things that you can do to prevent or de-escalate student misconduct because the reality is students will misbehave. A concrete strategy is when a student is misbehaving, you try talking to the student, you change their seat, you have a conversation with them in the hallway, you can buddy up with the teacher maybe down the hall and you create a system, whether it's paper clips, a certain color of a paper, and you say, I need you to deliver this to my colleague down the hall and he will provide you some instructions prior to coming back. The student goes down the hall unaware that really it's a timeout for the student and a timeout for the class. The other teacher knows the code, the paper clips or the handout, and they sit the student down, give them some time to kind of de-escalate, focus their energy on something else, and then they're ready to return and re-enter the learning environment. What that does, it doesn't allow for one student to monopolize the time of the teacher so that other students can learn, but it takes a student out of having an audience and misbehaving because often misconduct simply comes from wanting attention. One last question I do want to ask, what advice would you have for principals? There are no superheroes in this work. It takes an entire community. So principals cannot expect themselves or nor should superintendents and boards expect principals to be the superheroes. The best thing they can do is build your own capacity so that you can build the capacity of your leaders on campus so that you can create a safe, positive, effective learning environment and that true deep cultural change that needs to take place at every school. We've been talking with Ramiro Rubalcaba. He's from the Victor Valley Union High School District. Thanks for your work on the ground in keeping kids in school. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure and I look forward to future conversations. Another district that's been successful in reducing suspensions is Hemet Unified, which is near San Bernardino. Carolyn Jones highlighted that district in her article for its model practices. We have on the line Tracy Piper, the district's director of student support services. Welcome, Tracy. Hi, good morning. 
Tell us what your district has done to reduce all forms of suspensions and your approach to in-school suspensions in particular. So initially, in-school suspensions were a classroom. The teachers sent the students to in-school suspension when they sent them out of class. We shifted that a few years ago in collaboration with one of our principals who wanted to do something that helps students change their behavior. So we took that classroom and we converted it to an alternative to suspension classroom. And in that classroom, we have a teacher, a credentialed teacher, some classified support staff, and an administrator that provide a three-day curriculum to students that's intended to address the issue that happened, talk about how they can act differently in the future, and hopefully go forward and be successful in school without those behaviors. So how do students respond to this? I could see it's going to, kind of going to be a lot of eye-rolling. Students don't really want to be there in the first place. So how, how has that worked out? What's interesting is that teachers feel that it's less of a consequence than suspension, but students feel it's a more severe consequence than suspension because they don't get to go home and take the day off. They actually have to be in school those three days, and they have a separate lunch from everybody else. They're supervised the entire day. So the students find it to be a pretty severe consequence. I did want to ask you about high schools, because I think the focus in the state now has been on elementary grades and now K through 8 in terms of reducing willful defiance. Are you using this at the high school level as well? We are. Actually, we found more success at the high school level, mostly because students are a little more mature and able to understand how their behavior impacts others. We've been talking with Tracy Piper, Director of Student Support Services at Hemet Unified. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Before we leave you, we have a new feature this week, Voices from the Classroom. They're interesting moments our reporters have been able to capture in sound from their visits to a school. This week we hear from Laura Gonzalez, the school library teacher at Melrose Leadership Academy. That's a dual immersion school in Oakland Unified. And Laura Gonzalez comes to us courtesy of our reporter Zadie Stavely, whose daughter attends the school. So I was reading um, Dos Conejos Blancos, Two White Rabbits by Jairo Butriago to all the second through fifth grade classes. And it's a story of a little girl who travels through um, Mexico. It seems like they're traveling from El Salvador to Mexico. It's not completely clear, to the border. And she finds all sorts of lovely little things to look at along the way. But you know, it's a really serious story. And so at some point, they ride on top of a train. And I was reading it to a fourth and fifth grade class. And a fifth grade boy said, oh, that looks like fun. And right away I thought, oh, that's so insensitive. Of course it's not fun. You know this is a very serious thing. And I was just about to react and there was a little bit of snickering around him. And then a boy who was sitting at my side, really close, who was a recent arrival to the country, um, said, oh, I did that. And everybody just kind of stopped and looked at him because they couldn't believe it. And I said, oh, so was it fun? And he said, no, it was actually really scary. And then everybody just like really looked at him and were very quiet for a while. 
and then we moved on. We didn't really discuss it. I didn't want to push him to have to talk about something that he didn't want to share more about. Um, but it was just a very, I felt like it was a very profound moment for all of us. I mean, I find that in a lot of situations. Like if I'm reading kids a book about like the 10,000 dresses or there was, oh, there's a book called Prin My Princess Boy about a boy who likes to dress up like a princess. And if there are kids in the class that like to wear skirts, if there are boys who like to wear skirts or if their little brother likes to wear a skirt or they know someone, it's so much more powerful if they're the ones that respond to the story because sometimes you will get a little pushback of like, oh, boys aren't supposed to wear skirts or boys aren't supposed to wear pink or ew. I can lecture and I do if I have to. <laughs> but I just find that it's so much more powerful when it's the kids. They, they really listen to each other because that's who they care about. Really, the opinion is of their peers in, in this age. This week, EdSource kicks off its annual news match fundraising drive, and we would really appreciate it if you were to consider making a contribution to EdSource. This year, we have generous donations that would allow us to triple your donation. So please go to our website, find the donate button, and contribute. We would really appreciate it. It's the one time we do turn to our readers and our listeners, and we've been overwhelmed by generosity in the past, and we hope you consider it again this year. And that does wrap it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 